Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. We've got an incredible show for you today. Brian Burke joins us as we talk about how to raise capital and find the right partner. Brian is the principal of Praxis Capital and author of the book, The Hands-Off Investor. Brian today talks about how he started in the real estate industry just by flipping single family homes and how he looks for investors to raise money. He discusses the three curves of trust that every investor should know and deal with and how to find the right partner that can add value to you and the business. So without further ado, welcome Brian. All right. Well, we got Brian Burke with us today, author of The Hands-Off Investor and principal at Praxis Capital. Also here with my brother, Chris. Chris, say hello. How's it going, everybody? I am so stoked to have Brian Burke on. I've read his book three times already, and it just means a ton to us. Thank you so much. So Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I mean, mostly what I missed in that introduction. And again, we're just super happy to have you on. Yeah, well, you pretty much hit all the important stuff, right? <laughs> I'm the president and CEO and founder of Praxis Capital. We're a real estate private equity investment firm based out of California. Our primary strategies in, in the multifamily sector where we own about 3,000 units across the U.S. and growing primarily now in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and Florida. Came from a flipping background where I was buying, fixing, and reselling houses been at this for about 32 years now. And just last year, we crossed the half a billion dollar mark in real estate acquired. And I think we're going to cross the 1 billion mark probably next year is, is, oh is what gosh. it's seeming. So kind of cool. That's that that's incredible. That's awesome. We kind of wanted to dig a little bit more into like how, so you said you got started in the single family flipping. Is that where you originally got your roots in real estate? That was it. Buy, fix up and resell. I was buying houses on the courthouse steps at foreclosure auctions using money that I raised in a small blind pool fund. And I kept that going for about a dozen years. And then all of a sudden the foreclosure debacle of 2008 hit really hard. And that just set our business on fire. We were growing like crazy. We were flipping a hundred and something houses a year and bought this big rental portfolio one at a time at the auction and grew our company to 25 employees. And it was like running a hundred miles an hour with our hair on fire. And now we get to do 10 times the dollar volume in one tenth of the amount of actual effort or at least transaction velocity, maybe even less than that. So we were doing, <laughs> gosh, I mean, between buy and sell transactions, you know, and refinance, you know, 200 transactions a year. And now we can do four a year and do five times the dollar volume. It's kind of crazy. That's awesome. Back to like that single family. How did you get into the single family flipping and buying and like, and those investors, like when you originally started, did you, did your parents like want you to get into it or like kind of tell us how you, how you actually like first got into real estate? Oh, I wish I had zero influencers. <laughs> I, uh, I was broke and desperate and real estate seemed cool. And I read a book that said you can buy real estate with no money down. And I thought, well, that's me. <laughs> you know, I have, I have no money to put down. And I read another thing that said that most wealth was created in real estate. And I thought, well, I want wealth. So I want wealth that I can get it there and I don't have any money and I can buy without money. So life is good. This is the career choice for me. So I, I set down that path. 
of flipping houses because it was kind of like the only thing I could actually, you know, make work with the cash I could cobble together or cash advance on my credit cards or whatever it was I was doing. But finally, I had done enough of these where I built up a little track record where I'd done a couple dozen houses and was successful and was making money and decided it was time to hang up my W-2 full-time job. I was in law enforcement, so that meant giving up a government pension and, you know, full-time secure job. But I told all the guys at the station that I had put in my two weeks notice. I said, I rented out the room at the community center. I want all you guys to come. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing with real estate. And they all came and I told them about what I was doing. I said, if you guys will invest with me, minimum $5,000 investment and I'll split profits with you. And I ended up raising $500,000 from 28 investors, all carrying guns. And that was my (laughs) intro to fund management. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you knew that they know, knew how to collect, huh? <laughs> they knew how to collect. And I knew that if I lost a dollar of their money, I was a dead man. And so now here I am 32 years later, I haven't lost anybody's money. So I'm still alive to talk about it. Yeah. So how did, I guess, the fallout and the Great Recession, did you prepare for that or like what happened? I mean, it, it seems like almost, you know, when I just got started investing, i that was right before the Great Recession, and I definitely lost a lot of money there. But it happened. So how did you tackle that? Well, yeah, I was with you in feeling the pain. <laughs> so, you know, at that point, you know, my business was maturing a little bit. And so I was at this stage where I had investor money over here, and I could do these house flips. Then I had some of my own resources I'd been able to accumulate over there, and I could use that to go invest in all kinds of crazy, stupid crap. <laughs> and and so I used all my own money for the crazy, stupid crap, which all went to zero and, you know, basically had to start my whole life over. And then I had on the other side, I had my investment business with the investor money that was just killing it because it was built for that kind of climate. It was buying foreclosures and now there's foreclosures everywhere. So I was like drinking from a fire hose. So thank God I had that business set up that way because that's what enabled me to pull myself back up, get out of that doldrum of losing practically everything I had, all the money I had on my personal side and use the business, you know, to grow my way out of it. I mean, I had two choices. I could crawl in a hole or I could grow my way out. And, and that's what I ended up doing. I ended up growing my way out. So managed to not lose any of my investors money. In fact, they made more money then than ever. So it was kind of an interesting time. That's amazing. And so what do you think were like the fundamentals of that specific type of investment that allowed it to be recession proof because it was built for recessions you know i buying fixing and reselling houses it's a very short window of time so macro movements don't influence it to a great degree on an overall strategy so in other words if i'm buying something today that's worth a hundred thousand dollars chances are in three months when i go to sell it it's still going to be worth a hundred thousand dollars And if it's not, I might lose a little bit of money on the house that I have in my inventory at that very moment. But now that I know that they're not worth 100,000 or they're only worth 80, well, now I'm buying under the assumption that they're worth 80. So you're able to react to the market relatively quickly and reprice everything that you buy going forward and you make back whatever you might have lost during that time. So the, the big risk in flipping when you're flipping at volume, and you know, we had as many as 50 or 60 houses in our inventory at any given time. The only thing that's at risk is those houses in your inventory. If a switch gets flipped and the market just tanks, 
whatever you have in your book, you're going to end up with about a third of them will make money, a third of them will break even, and a third of them will lose money. So, mm -hmm. you know, what that, so what I was finding is when we had those kind of market movements, we had about a year where we just made nothing. But that was about it. We didn't really lose. But once you figured out what the market is doing and you reprice everything going forward, well, you're right back in from everything you bought from that moment forward is at a new basis, right? So now you're back to making money on, you know, 95% of what you buy instead of a third of what you buy. That's amazing. And so I guess one of the keys I was hearing from what you were saying is that you don't want to be holding on to properties too long. Like you want to be like purchasing them and then getting them for sale as quickly as possible. That's the and, flipping model. Yeah. Yeah. That's the flipping model. Yeah. And then to always be buying and always knowing what the market price is or the investor wholesale price is for a property and then using that to your advantage, no matter what the market conditions are. Well, I would say be careful about the always be buying part. You know, it's be buying if the market is falling and you can kind of predict where it's going, still be buying. If, and if, if you can say like, like okay, properties drop 10%, they're probably going to drop another 10%. And you can still buy and have it make sense, even if it does drop another 10%, keep buying. But, you know, when in about 03 or 04, this is yeah, around 04, I almost stopped buying. I went from flipping like two dozen houses a year to doing like one house a year. Just because you're looking at the market, it just made absolutely no sense. I'm like, something really bad is going to happen. And so we really cut, I cut way back and was buying almost nothing in 04 and 05 and 06. And thank God for that, because our values tumbled 30 to 70%, depending on neighborhood here. Wow. Yeah. So that was your saving grace right there, is knowing that prices had just gone up dramatically. And also, it, you must have had an inkling about the lending market at that point in time as well. Yeah, it was more about, it was less about the seeing how far the values went up than seeing that everybody who was buying was putting no money down, financing on negative amortization loans that they had to provide no income qualification for. And so there was no skin in the game and no track record on the part of the borrower. And then you couple that with the fact that, you know, these $500,000 houses are rent for $1,500 a month. So even like the, the economics of it doesn't make sense. So when nothing makes sense, it's sometimes a good idea to stand on the sidelines. And that's when I stood on the sidelines, but jump right back in. As soon as those values started falling, we were all in, man. Yeah. Chris yeah. and I have always said that oh, keep buying, but buy for cash flow. And as, it doesn't matter whether the market goes up or goes down. If you're buying for cash flow, the values will just average down or average up just like stocks. But the caveat there is to make sure that the cash flow, when it, when it starts looking like you know that $1,500 for 500K, that's not something that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little frothy and you have to have some concerns about what's really going on in the market. So stepped back, but then, you know, once we jumped in full bore, you know, we were just really running and then we were raising all kinds of money because now we were buying tons and tons of houses. And, but, you know, then looking at it, we're like, okay, this is only going to last for like three or four years. And then all these foreclosures are going to be gone. Then what are we going to do? And that's when that's when we really started shifting our focus, you know, more into the multifamily space where it's like, you know, we need to have something that's more sustainable and more scalable so that we can make sure we're still uh, putting our investors money to work in five years and 10 years and 15 years down the road. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, essentially you started out raising money for 
investors, you know, the, the other police officers, the, the men with guns. That was <laughs> and, it. I mean, that's a pretty unique way to get started in real estate. You know, I know normally like somebody is going to just their own home and fix it up or, you know, maybe they're getting a loan from a family member, but to raise funds from 28 investors, I don't think I've heard a story from anyone saying that they basically started a fund to flip houses. So what made you come up with that, that idea? And then what did you find out that worked? Well, it was lack of alternatives, really, you know, so, you know, th this wasn't my first deal. By this point, I had done a couple dozen these flips on my own just with, you know, various ways to finance them from literally from cash advancing my credit cards, some, you know, subject to finance deals, no money down stuff, signature lines of credit, friends of friends that had a little bit of money and would invest. I mean, just however I could scrape these things together, I did it. Really, that was how I built a track record. And it was that track record that enabled me to go to all of my friends from work and say, look, here's a window, here's a look through the window of what I've been doing for the last, you know, five, six years. And I'm going to keep doing this and I'll do it even more if you guys will invest in me and I'll split the money with you guys. That was really how it came about. And because I wanted to grow, I was going to do this full time now, I needed to grow, but I didn't have money of my own to do it. So there was no other alternative other than to, you know, gather up investor money from other friends. So I, I came up with the idea that, if I did that, I could make it work. And here I am. That is a great story and a great journey. So what type of advice do you have for somebody who, you know, starting from nothing to get, I mean, to where you are today, or, or at least just get to where they're able to raise funds from friends kind of with a solid track record? Well, you know, initially when you're trying to get started, the only place you're going to raise money is from friends. The mistake people make is they're like, oh, I'm going to do this real estate investment thing. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to go get my first deal under contract. And then I'm going to go out and find a bunch of accredited investors and I'm going to raise all the money. The only <laughs> thing I can say to that is good freaking luck. It's just <laughs> right? it's flat out not going to happen. You'll fail and you'll go, oh, I'm not good at this and you'll give up and it's just, it's just a recipe for disaster. If you want to make this work, you have to grow organically and, orga and growing organically means you start small, you do whatever it is that you can do to start building a track record and then you build off of that track record. And so generally that means your first deal, you're probably going to have to come up with other ways to come up with the money. You're going to have to borrow, you're going to have to you know, take risks, you're going to have to have friends with money or partner with someone or something to make deals happen so you can start building that track record. Because really, to ask someone to write you a check, you have to get across three different trust curves or it's not gonna happen. The first trust curve is they have to trust that real estate is a good place to invest money. If you go to someone and you say, hey, would you invest in my real estate deal? And they're like, oh no, real estate sucks. I'm not investing in that. I don't care what else you say, they're not writing you a check. So you have to get past that. The second trust curve is you have to get them to trust you. So if you say, oh, I, I got this real estate deal. And they're like, oh, I love real estate. What do you know about real estate? Well, this is my first deal. I don't know anything. You know, and, and I don't know you, but you know, would you invest in it? They're not going to trust you. And so therefore, they're not going to invest with you. But if they do trust you, either because you share DNA with them, you, know, you guys have the same <laughs> blood, you're, you've been friends and kindergarten, whatever the reason that they trust you already for other reasons and they decide to invest with you, the third trust curve that you have to get over 
is the deal and you have to show them a deal that they can believe in and say that, yeah, I think that deal can make money. So if you can't hit all three of those, you're not raising money from anyone. You literally have to hit all three of those. You, and there's no shortcut. You can't go from zero to all the way to the third one. You can't go from, you can't skip trusting the deal and trusting you straight to, oh, look, I got this great deal. You know, the old, you know, find the deal and the money will come. BS, it won't happen. So you literally have to get people to trust that you know what you're doing. You've got the right deal. That's great information. I don't know that I've heard the three trust curves before. Do you go over that in your book? No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> this is advice to someone that's raising money. And my book is written to the person <laughs> who's actually going to invest money to make sure the guy that's raising money isn't BSing you. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. Like when we're talking to investors, we're making sure that, you know, real estate's a viable option for an investment, number one. And then like you said, number two, that they're willing to place money with us. And then third, like the last thing is like, is the deal actually worth it? Yeah. And you'll grow into this role. You know, when I first raised my, you know, my first fund was with, you know, my the cop friends. Right. And so, you know, these are a bunch of cops. The first thing I have to do is convince them to invest in real estate. You know, and then I have to show them what I've been doing for the last five years and why they should invest with me in real estate. Now I skip the first one. Anybody that comes to me now is already interested in real estate or they're not coming to me. You know, people don't come to me to go like, oh, hey, you know, I uh, this IRA that I was thinking of putting into a mutual fund. And I go, oh, no, wait, you should try real estate. I don't do that. You know, anybody that comes to me already wants real estate. They go, oh, I hear that you'd have real estate investments. I'm interested. And then we start at trust curve number two. So I just bypassed the first one completely. I can't skip it. I just already, I start there. Those yeah. people have already satisfied the first one. It's like you have a filter, which helps. That's But I developed it, right? I mean, in the beginning, you can't afford to have a filter. I mean, you have to go to, any, you have to go to people that already trust you. You almost have to do it in reverse. You have to go, okay, who would trust me? And now I got to go convince them to trust me with real estate. So that means you got to go to your parents. You got to go to your siblings, friends, inner circle, country club buddies, chamber of commerce people, that kind of stuff. And be like, hey, you guys have known me for years. You know I'm trustworthy. Have you thought about real estate kind of thing? I mean, that's really how you have to do it because if they don't already trust you for other reasons, they're certainly not going to trust you with real estate on your first time out of the gate. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I think that's, that's great advice for those people just trying to get into their first deal too. I mean, Chris and I, our first interview on this, our podcast was our dad. And the reason being is he was, has been and still is a huge investor with us. You know, like starting with your family, your friends, those that are close to you and, you know, essentially like placing a bet on you, right? That you're, you're going to win. And so that's, that's been really and, good. And, and your dad trusted you because he, he's like, <laughs> like, I created you. You know, I put you, I, he'll do the old like, you know, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it just as easily, right? Uh, so, so don't screw up and lose my money. And, you know, I didn't have that advantage. You know, no one in my family had a dollar to their name, you know? So it's really tough if you're in that position. The only way you can do this is to grow organically and slowly. And that's why it took me so long. So, you know, people always ask like, you know, oh, I, you know, I haven't done a deal. I want to go raise money and buy a 100 unit apartment complex for my first deal, you know, how do I do that? Go flip a house. Well, what does that have to do with buying an apartment complex? No, you don't, you know, forget you, Brian, you don't have it right. You know, I told you I want to buy 100 units. But the reality of it is, is, you know, nobody's going to do that with you. you know, they're not going to take that ride with you. And so I say that, you know, if you're, if you're standing on the ground and you want to get up on the roof, there's two ways to get there. You can jump up on the roof or you can take a ladder. And if you jump, chances are you're probably going to fall and break your leg and you might even break someone else's leg. 
but you're not going to make it on the roof. But if you take a ladder, you'll get up there. It may take you longer, but you'll eventually get there. And those are the two different ways to approach this business. You can either, you know, grow it and start small and grow it, or you can try to go straight to the top. But the failure rate for choice B is a lot higher. Yeah, that is great advice. I kind of want to move this over to partnerships a little bit. I'm sure you've partnered with some people in the past. Do you have any advice on like how to choose partners and how to, I mean, essentially the cops that invested with you, I'm sure you consider them investors and, and maybe partners on some aspects, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit. Yeah, they were strictly investors, not partners. Okay. They had no active role. So therefore, you know, they were just strictly passive investors. So I got no help there. But when I first started in this business, the first approach I had to real estate was to buy foreclosures from distressed homeowners. You know, you send them a postcard and then they answer the postcard. Yeah, come look at my house. You come look at the house. You're like, oh, this needs this much and fix up work. And, you know, I'll make you an offer. The problem was, is I was 20 years old and I looked like I was 15. <laughs> so, you know, nobody that's, you know, 40 years old that's losing their house in foreclosure wants some 15-year-old to come along and say they're going to buy their house. Oh, no. So I, would par- I partnered with this guy for one reason. He looked older than me. <laughs> and I'm like, if he goes with me, then people will think he's the guy and they'll, they'll talk to him. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, like, they'll think that he, you know, knows what he's talking about and all that stuff. So that was kind of the way I approached my first partnership. And I learned, okay, well, that's not really the criteria to select a partner. That didn't, that, it did. I always say you've got to have a partner that brings something you don't bring. And that's what he brought. He brought, you know, the look of age that I didn't have. So in that respect, that worked great. But that was the end of, you know, how much value that partnership created. The next partnership I did was with another guy that was much, much older than me, but it didn't matter because we were buying houses at the auction. So it didn't matter how old he looked because no one can say no when you hand him a cashier's check. But the reason I partnered with him is he was one of my competitors. And it's like, you know, we keep fighting over all these houses. Why don't we just start doing this together? We don't have to keep bidding against each other all the time. So we partnered up. The biggest problem with that partnership was I found that really what I did is I partnered up with myself. And the last thing you need is yourself for a partner because that adds no value. You know, you need somebody that brings something you don't have. We all kind of brought the same stuff. So that kind of, you know, it was fun while it lasted, but it wasn't really, you know, all that prosperous. Then the next time I partnered up was an incredible wake up call for me. It was after the market had collapsed and, you know, the foreclosure business was just going incredibly well. And I was looking at the foreclosure pipeline and I'm drinking from a fire hose. You know, there's so many opportunities out here. I couldn't possibly fix them all up. I was at the foreclosure auction one day and, and there was another guy that was there that I hadn't seen him before. And I'm like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, oh, we're trying to check out the foreclosure auction and figure this out. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, what do you guys do? And he's like, oh, we're home builders, but you know, we can't build anything right now because the cost of construction is more than these houses are selling for. So we figured we'd just stop building for a while and come buy houses at foreclosure and fix them up and resell them. But they're like, we can't figure out how this whole process works. It's really complicated. And I'm like, well, I can't figure out how to remodel like hundreds of houses at a time. (laughs) And so he told me what company was with, I immediately recognized it was the largest home builder in town. So I'm like, why don't we partner up together? And I've got all this part figured out. You've got the construction side figured out and you know, we could take the world by storm. So we said, all right, in the next six months, let's try to do six houses together and see how it goes. So in the next six months, we did 60 houses And it was like just incredible. 
So that was kind of the power of, you know, one plus one equals 50. That's literally what that was. So, you know, finding the right, that was the aha moment that I had that if you can find the right partner, you can go from a small time business person that no one's ever heard of to someone that's on the, you know, the front page of the newspaper. And that's literally what happened. I mean, we were like featured in newspapers, the local paper, we're on the front page of the real estate section of the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, just stuff like that started happening for us because we were really, that partnership was so incredible. And then when it was time to go into multifamily, kind of same thing, found partners that had 100,000 units of multifamily experience to come join this company and help us take the platform to the next level. So with the right people in place, you can really get a jump on your trajectory in this business. And what's well, kind of unpacking that partnership, like you, you said earlier, you don't want someone that's exactly like you. You want someone that compliments you and someone, I mean, like that first partner that you even described, he was, you know, someone that looked older. He fit some sort of criteria that helps you propel moving forward. And I think a lot, I was just talking with a, a bro, one of our brokers earlier and he wants to like partner up with another broker. And I'm like, why do you want to do that? You're just doubling your efforts to do the same amount of work. <laughs> like what you want to find is someone that really just excels at the stuff that you're maybe not so good at, or you don't even know how to do those examples that you provided, I think are great scenarios on both the, the ones that complement each other and also the ones that maybe did not so much. Yeah. So I guess when you were finding those partners, sometimes it's hard to know like what you don't know. The stroke of luck of like finding that part, maybe not the stroke of luck, like you're doing something amazing at the auction blocks and they happen to roll by. But how would you go about like if you're a younger person looking to get into real estate, identifying like who you would partner with or, or how you would even find that partner or know what person that is? I wish I could give really good advice there, but quite frankly, I can't because I've lucked into all of the the most beneficial partnership relationships I've had have just been happenstance. Yeah. And so, so really, if you want to find a good partner, what you have to do is you have to get yourself out there and start taking steps towards what your goal is and see what ends up transpiring along the way. And, you know, here I was at the foreclosure auction, just doing my daily routine, going to the auction to go buy a house, wasn't there to look for a partner. At the, that was the furthest thing from my mind. But in opening up this discussion of like, you know, hey, what are you doing here? And kind of hearing what their challenge was and knowing, you know, how big they were. And, you know, I, I'm like, gosh, these guys could bring investors. They could bring all kinds of stuff. I saw that as an opportunity where I'm like, if I can propose to them how I can really add value to what they're trying to do, I already know how they can add value to what I'm trying to do. We might just be able to make something happen here. And that's when I approached him and I'm like, guys, look, I just want to talk to you about maybe partnering together. You said that you were having a lot of trouble figuring out how to make the, you know, how this whole purchase process works and title research. I've got all this nailed down. I've done this hundreds of times, et cetera, et cetera. I've built systems that do this, you know, let's partner up. And, and so if I didn't have the system, I built systems from the ground up, software and everything. If I hadn't done that, these guys would have been like, oh, here's just another competitor. We don't need this guy. We can do it on our own. If I hadn't done this, you know, like a hundred times for over 15 years, they would have been like, yeah, this guy's in the same boat we're in. He's not going to help us. You know, so you just got to kind of be out there and always like building up as if you're just already in this thing. And then, you know, these things just appear out of nowhere. It sounds really strange, but that's just how it happens. They just appear out of nowhere. The other guy, my multifamily partner's phone call one day, just out of the blue, answer the phone. 
he's like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, a friend of mine is so and so, and he said I should give you a call. Here's our situation, and that so and so that he was talking about was a happened to be a mutual friend. This mutual friend used to work years ago for a real estate agent that sold my flip houses. And, you know, subsequently, like, left that whole industry, became an executive at a real estate firm that buys senior living housing. And, you know, these guys knew these guys. And, and you know, a conversation ensued at, like, a Girl Scout camp when the dads are all there around the fire. Like, <laughs> you know, and, oh, I do, you know, and, and it came up there, oh, you should call Brian. And so they did. And now we've got this incredible partnership that came out of this relationship that you would think would have had nothing to do with what we're doing right now. So you just never know where this stuff is going to come from. And you have to be open to, you know, looking for ways that you can add value to someone else and that someone else can add value to you. And you'll recognize it when you see it. That's all I can say. Yeah. There's one saying that I like, I think my dad always used to say, and Chris and I play a lot of golf and he he always used to say, yeah, the, the more you practice, the luckier you get. Right. Yeah. Good old right. I. <laughs> so, Brian, what did your multifamily partner bring to the table? Like, can you describe that? Like, I mean, you were bringing fundraising and then he was bringing kind of multifamily asset management and value add and also property management? Or well, what, what was yeah, the all, of all of the above. Yeah, all, all of the above. So, you know, at the time I was, I was doing some multifamily investing in Texas. They were all third party managed. And, you know, I was like sourcing all these opportunities. And then my builder partner from here was kind of the on the ground partner, you know, go out there and make sure that the property management company is doing their job and that sort of stuff. He ended up moving out there actually. And so we ended up just kind of doing only Texas. And that was where we bought and because we had a presence there and he would handle all the boots on the ground stuff. I was doing underwriting. When I got that phone call, the guy that called me had spent a 25-year career working for you know, large household name companies in a senior executive C-suite role. And he said, me and two of my kind of friendly competitors that have spent their entire careers working for some of the largest institutional buyers in the country are looking for something more entrepreneurial. And so what these guys brought was a 20-year career, a 30-year career, and a 40-year career in real estate. So he brought two guys with him. Two of them were VPs in charge of acquisitions and asset management. And the third was a president of property management for several multifamily private equity firms, management companies, institutional publicly traded companies. And so I basically got a company that had an institutional infrastructure that could handle a 100,000 unit portfolio in a box with this partnership. Money can't buy that. You can't just go like, okay, I'll pay each of you guys a $500,000 a year salary. I mean, you know, I could never have done that. But now I get these guys as a partner because they're looking to be more entrepreneurial on the ownership side and not on the, you know, working for, you know, the publicly traded company side. That's huge because now all of a sudden when we go out to go talk to a broker or a seller or a lender, instead of, you know, we got 500 units in Texas, it's, we have a hundred thousand units of experience in 15 states going back 40 years. 
that's a much different story to tell. And it gets you a lot different doors open. So that's what I got. Wow. That, I mean, what an incredible stroke of luck. Or like when you say it's luck, it, I mean, AJ mentions like the harder you work on your focused goal and the more you stay open to that opportunity like coming up. But did you know when you started in multifamily that you needed and wanted partners and to just kind of that out into the world or were you just very focused on doing what you were doing and it just kind of came happened upon you? Yeah, it just happened. Not, not at all. I mean, I, I always thought I was the lone ranger. I could do everything. I could be everything. I didn't need partners. I felt like when you have partners, you spend more time dealing with partnership crap than you do doing deals and actually doing anything that's productive. But with the right partners, you don't have to spend all your time, you know, administering the partnership, so to speak. You get all that out of the way up in, up in the beginning. You get all your agreements airtight. You kind of get everything nailed down and then you can just go out and do business. And what you can do is so much more than what you can do on your own. And I was not seeking that out at all. I was just, like I said, I was the lone ranger. This just happened upon, upon me. And I'm like, this is, this is the piece this is the missing piece. I recognized it for what it was, that this was the missing piece to take my business from a regional, small time, smaller time player and really knock it out of the park. And, you know, and these guys would tell you this is the best thing that ever happened to them. And I would say the same. So, you know, if you have the right partnership, incredible things can happen. Yeah, that is, that is a great testament of, you know, how partners can help affect uh, the business and, and help propel. That's uh, pretty amazing. Well, I think we, we better get on to our, our last four questions here. The first one is going to be, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? That it will all work out just fine one day. Because when I was 25, I was thinking this was never going to happen for me. You just have to keep the faith and just always be putting one foot in front of the other. And if you keep doing that and you never stop doing that, whatever your goal is, however unattainable it feels, it can absolutely materialize for you if you just keep going in that direction. Awesome. So Brian, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? It was selling, well, I guess my first first one was I would sell golf balls to golfers where they crossed the cart path across <laughs> the street because yes. we, lived, we lived on the golf course and all the golfers would hit their ball into our yard. So I would collect them in an egg carton and then I, you could go to the, where the cart path is and sell golf balls back to the golfers that lost them. So that, that was probably my first one. Actually, no, wait, before that, my grandmother had a pomegranate tree and I actually set up a stand at the corner and sold pomegranates to people who passed by. So that was my first, first one. Yeah. And then it was golf balls. And then the one that actually kind of kickstarted was selling books where you'd mail out like letters to people you buy these books and then they send you an order for the books. Then you send the order to a drop shipper who ships the book to the person who ordered it. And so it was like, you never had to have any inventory. And I thought, Oh, this will be cool. I mean, it was a stupid idea. It never worked, but they, one of the books that was, there's like five different books. And one of the books was a how to invest in real estate book. It was probably the worst how to invest in real estate book that was ever written, but I read it anyway. And cause I'm like, oh, I need to read the books that I'm selling. So I know what they are. So I read the book and that's where I got the idea. You could buy real estate with no money down and kind of set, it was like the spark that set this whole thing aflame. <laughs> that is incredible. 
even kinda, though it was a terrible book. What was so bad about it? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like there's a thousand how to buy real estate books, right? And I mean, this one would never made the light of day. I mean, the only, the only way it was ever sold was by people that were doing these crazy multi-level mailer marketing BS stuff. You know, it wasn't in bookstores or, you know, nothing like that back then. It was just some garbage, probably self-published book. I don't even know what it was, but, you know, it was just lame. But it said you could buy real estate with no money down, so I believed it. it it worked for you yeah i guess it wasn't such a bad book after all was it (laughs) (laughs) all right how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey i have really no formal training my only formal training is the california state required courses to real estate broker that i did in correspondence class through uh, (laughs) buy the book and read the book and then take the test formal training hasn't helped me at all But my own kind of casual training has been where I've learned everything. Everything I know is through the School of Hard Knocks. When I wanted to develop my own software, I read the book on how to do it, taught myself how to do it, and created my own software that was way past anything that was available on the market. Nobody else had anything like it. It gave me a tremendous competitive advantage. So, you know, everything that I've done, I taught myself how to do. And if you can do that, you'll know it so well that you can actually make the damn thing work rather than just like, oh yeah, I read that in a textbook one day and got a good grade and then went on and forgot it all. Cool. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? So I think AJ and I always struggle with, okay, you know, is this something we should do ourselves or is it something that we should find an expert to do for us? And like trying to find the balance there is, is something that I personally struggle with all the time. So what, what do you think about that? And what's your advice there? Well, it depends on where you are, you know, in, in life, you know, the hiring an expert costs a lot of money. So when I first got started in this business, I didn't have a dime. I couldn't have afforded, you know, the software program that I wrote for myself, I spent, oh, I don't know, maybe a few thousand hours writing that. And I would have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for an expert to do it. Now, they would have done it in a lot less time, but it would have been enormously expensive. So the only way for me to do it was to do it myself. But, you know, we started up a lending company three years ago, and we needed to create backbone, you know, software backbone for it. So what did we do? We hired an expert. And here you go. Here's a hundred grand. Build us our software backbone so we don't have to mess with it. And we got that company up and running remarkably fast. And now we're one of the top bridge lenders in the country in just a very short period of time. We've already done a half a billion dollars in real estate loans, you know, in, in two and a half years. So, you know, that's the difference is it really depends on where you are in life and what resources you have and how big of a hurry you're in and all those things. There's no one size fits all answer to that question. Thank you. Okay. And then our final question is, What was your Moby Dick of real estate? The deal that got away. Oh, man. (laughs) The deal that got away. Jeez. You guys are good. That's white whale. That's the the first time I've actually been asked that question. So you, you you guys are good. What deal got away? Oh, my God. Well, hmm. I don't even know. You know, now I've done, I've bought like 750 properties. I don't even remember them all. I probably haven't even seen 500 of them ever. It's so hard to know, but hmm, which one got away? You stumped me. And I always, how many times have I said, you can ask me anything, you will not stump me. And you guys are the first ones to actually do it and actually stump me on something. The fish that got away. Yeah, I, I don't know. We've, we've had so many of them. You know, here's the thing. I tell people all the time, we have to 
look at about a thousand multifamily properties to underwrite a hundred multifamily properties to make offers on 10 of them to get one of them. So that means for every property that I buy, there's at least nine Moby Dicks there, right? Because yeah. there's, <laughs> yeah, there's nine other deals that we, that we aren't going to get. Now, maybe they were never worth getting, but this is just a business where you get what falls into your net and you don't sweat about the stuff that doesn't fall into your net. So I don't even care <laughs> about the deal I didn't get enough to even remember it. I'm just too focused on what we, what we do collect and can't cry over lost milk, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good answer too. I mean, you certainly have tons and tons of experience and tons of deals that you've done. So, well, awesome, Brian. We super appreciate you being on the show. Tons of great advice today. Just wanted to say thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks so much, Brian. Honored to have you here. Can't thank you enough. Sure thing, Chris. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.